great song. I know because the Bible says so. That's how we know. The confidence we have is found in the Word of God. And so those are the great things we have. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in the Old Testament this evening. We're going to be in the book of Job. This is middle part of a three-part series I'm doing. I'm kind of using you all as guinea pigs because I've got to do some day lessons down the road here, and I want to work up some new material and several things from the life of Job we want to look at. So last week we began that, tonight, and then Lord willing, next Sunday night we'll kind of wrap this up as we kind of look at some lessons together from the book of Job. And I hope it will be helpful for you as we look at some of these things together. Before we get started, just kind of a personal note, our Jordan, Jordan Schaus, was in the pulpit today. It's the first time he was able to preach in five weeks after his surgery, and I know so many of you all have prayed for him, and he, like me, is most comfortable when he's on this side of the pulpit, and so I'm thankful he's back preaching God's Word, and that's just a wonderful thing. Remember John Denver, the pop singer, Country Roads, Annie's song? Almost heaven, West Virginia. I've been in West Virginia. I don't know if I'd say that, but almost heaven. He had a song called Friends With You. And the chorus of Friends With You goes this way. Friends, I will remember you, think of you, and pray for you. And when another day is through, I'll still be friends with you. According to Facebook, the average Facebook user has 330 friends. They say of that, only 28% are genuine. I don't know what the other part is, but only 28%. According to a Gallup poll, the average person has eight to nine close friends. The book of Proverbs tells us that a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17 says, a friend loves at all times. When Jesus told the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, and the man who worked all day came to his master, was kind of complaining. The master replied by saying, friend, I did you no wrong. Jesus said in John 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. When Judas came to betray Jesus, the Lord said, friend, do what you've come to do. And in John 15, our Lord says, the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. One of the value of worship, I believe, is that we are not just members of this congregation. We're more than just brothers and sisters in Christ. We are friends. And we see that evidence so many ways as we see the support and the love that we have for all of each other. And so that takes us to our study this evening as we think about life lessons from the book of Job. In our first lesson last Sunday evening, we talked about the overview of the book just a little bit. We talked about the pain of Job, what we learn from Job's pain. This evening, we now transition and talk about the gist of the book, the, the biggest part of the book, and that is life lessons from Job's friends. And there are several things we want to look at this evening. The bulk of the book is his conversations between Job and his friends. Uh, there are 35 chapters of these conversations involving over 12,000 words. And these are not casual conversations. They're formal speeches. One speaks, and then another speaks. When we think about conversations, we're interchanging, interrupting, and talking all at the same time. But these are like formal speeches. They're, they're back and forth. There's a series of three rounds of these speeches. And in these speeches, they, the thoughts are very harsh towards Job. They repeat themselves, and they're accusatory. And Job feels compelled in each of these to defend himself. 
And what the Lord does is the Lord invites us into all these conversations. We're like the fly on the wall. We hear all the things going back and forth. And I think one of the things we're to, we're to pull out of this is how tiresome and repetitive these things are. They keep saying the same things around and around, and, and it makes the reader weary as we kind of experience what Job went through. Now, this evening, we want to just pull out a few lessons, what we learned from Job's friends, and immediately, there's some things we see right away. And one of the first things we notice in chapter 2 is that they came. The Bible says in chapter 2, verse 11, that when Job's three friends heard of his adversity, they had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. They came from a distance. That speaks of their friendship. That speaks of what they thought about Job. Years ago, Hallmark Card had this little logo, when you care enough to send the best, send a Hallmark. Well, these guys didn't send a card. They came. And when you notice the end of this verse, they came for two purposes. Number one, to sympathize. To sympathize is to feel your pain in my heart. I feel what you're going through. And then they came to comfort Job. But we also notice the second thing about them is that they sat in silence. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. Each one of them tore his robes and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. That's hard for us. That's near impossible for me. When I'm sitting with somebody, just sit there and don't say anything. And we feel like we have to. Sometimes we want to tell a joke just to get the mind off the pain. Sometimes we want to reminisce about the past. Obviously, Job and his three friends had a history in the past. They had, had a friendship. They didn't go back to that past. No one was speaking a word. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. Our issue is finding out what time it is to see that. And then beginning in chapter 3, Job breaks the silence. And Job speaks for the first time. And what he says is spoken out of pain. His words are raw, his words are honest, and his words are shocking. And right there is a little lesson for us. When somebody is hurting... Be it physical, be it emotional, be it physical, be it spiritual. Oftentimes when someone's hurting, they say things that are not logical. They may say things that are not rational. They may even say things that are not biblical. They may even say things that they themselves do not understand. And let's stop here for a moment. This is a problem in our society. This is a problem in our fellowship. We're going to talk about how easy it is to wear masks and how often we wear masks to cover things up. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Honesty makes you vulnerable. Honesty puts you out there. Honesty sometimes is difficult. Our culture likes wearing masks because masks are preferred. Honesty reveals that you're still a work in progress. But what we see and what we appreciate here is how honest Job was. Now let's look at some verses here, then we'll come back to some of this here. 
Job 3, verse 3 and 4. Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which says a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Within the same chapter, he'll say this. Why did I not die at birth? Now, can you, say, can you imagine someone coming to this building this evening saying, Hey, how are you? Why didn't I die at birth? I mean, we, we would be stunned to hear somebody like that. Oh, don't talk that way. You should never have those thoughts. And, and that's what we do. Job is honest. Job is hurting. And we need to see when somebody's hurting, sometimes they say things that just stuns us. And that's what's taking place here. Now, what we like to do is wear a mask. And there are a lot of masks we wear. One mask we wear is smiles. Everybody smiles. And when they, as long as everybody's smiling, everybody's happy on the inside. Another mask we wear is avoiding people. And so here comes Jason. I'm just going to go the other way. I don't want to talk to him. Okay, so we wear a mask. Another thing we do is denial. How are things? Okay. Really? On the inside, I'm questioning, why didn't I die when I was born? But how easy it is for us to wear a mask. Or to wear a mask that simply switches the subjects. What about those boilermakers? I'm talking about you. What about Purdue? I'm talking about you. You see? And we can do that. And so when we do that, we never get the help that we should have. Now, why do we do this? There's, there's some reasons. I don't have this on your note card, but this is just some things. We are embarrassed to reveal true feelings. Can you imagine somebody this evening saying, I don't understand why I was not stillborn. I wish I had never been born. I mean, we, we, we can't handle thoughts like that. And so because of that, we wear a mask. We wear a mask because we think no one will understand or care. No one's going to care. No one will understand what I'm going through. So we wear a mask. We wear a mask because we're very private people. And we just don't want to share our feelings. We wear a mask because we fear getting a lecture or a scolding. You know, can you imagine going to one of the elders and saying, would you please tell me doctrinally why I did not die at birth? Come over here. We've got a room. We're going to talk to you. And you think, they're going to lecture me. They're going to get on me. And I don't want that to happen. We don't want others to think our faith is weak. Why would you say such things, Job? Is your faith weak? And then we believe that we're the only ones with problems. We also think that people won't like us if they knew the truth. You know, if, you, if you had somebody sitting right beside you tonight and they say, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I wish I died when I was born. <laughs> just, I want some distance here, okay? We, we, don't, we can't handle that. We've had a bad experience with people in the past. That's happened a lot. We've had some people we told our feelings to, and it didn't turn out well. And then number nine, we don't want others to see us cry. Now, whatever the reason is, when we wear a mask, we keep people from helping us. Had Job wore a mask, his friends would have never had these conversations. They've never been able to help him. They've never been able to do what they could. And as long as we continue to wear a mask, we will suffer, and we will suffer alone and in silence because there's no one there to help us. And so we need to see and appreciate how honest Job is. And maybe one lesson we ought to learn from this is maybe I need to be more honest. Maybe there's times I need to be 
more forthright. Maybe it's time to think, you know what? I almost didn't come tonight because I just don't get anything out of it. Maybe we can get help if we were more honest and put our max down. So throughout the chapter, Job continually asks the question, why? Four times in chapter 3, he asks why. And when he hears somebody saying, why? Why, why, why did I not die when I was born? Why this? Why this? Why that? that propels someone else to come up with an answer. And Job is not really seeking an answer. He's really just kind of expressing his feelings. And his friends begin this conversation because they believe they have to answer him. And so in chapter 4, now if you've got your Bible, open the book of Job. Let's read the first nine verses here. Job speaks in chapter 3. He's the first one to break the silence. He speaks out. It's shocking. And multiple times he says, why, why, and why. So starting in chapter 4, the first of the friends, Eliphaz, which most likely is the oldest of them all, Eliphaz the Temite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble needs. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, you're dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Now, I want you to go back and notice, and you can really begin verse 7, but I want you to particularly notice verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, once again, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. What has just happened? Job has just buried his ten children. What is he saying? They got what they deserved. What's he saying? Your kids did something wrong, and they're punished by God. What else do we know? Job himself is suffering right now. He has all kinds of health issues. What, they, what are they implying? They're implying Job, God, is punishing you because you are not doing right. And that's the beginning of this discussion back and forth. And from here, it only gets worse. Job now, referring to his friends, says in chapter, four, verse, chapter 12, verse 4, I am a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and he answered him, the just and the blameless man is a joke. That's how he sees his friends looking at him. He would say in chapter 16, then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Is there no limit to your windy words or what plagues you that you answer? Or in chapter 19, then Job responded, how long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you've insulted me, you are not ashamed to wrong me. And we see over and over how this goes. And so we begin, first of all, by recognizing three mistakes that Job's friends made. The first mistake they made is they wrongly accused Job. We remember as we studied last week in chapter 1, verse 8, God is the one who says about Job, he's blameless, he's upright, there's no one on the face of the earth like Job. That's how God viewed them. They viewed Job as someone who's a sinner. And so their perspective of Job was wrong. 
and they didn't understand that. Secondly, in this regard, their theology was wrong. Their thinking was, if something bad happens, it's a direct result of sin. And so if you've had something bad in your life, God is punishing you. Now, if you will, take your New Testaments. I want you to notice how many, many years later, this same thought keeps coming up. Not only in the Bible, but we could even say today. John chapter 19, if you will. John chapter 19. Excuse me, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And here it says in verse 1, John chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? You see, they had the same theology of Job's friends. If you got a handicap, it means somebody in that family sinned and God is punishing you. Now, if you got your Bible, look with me in the book of Luke, chapter 13. And again, another example of this spoken here by Jesus. Luke chapter 13, and we begin verse 1. Luke 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who had reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? That's a question. Here some people had something bad happen to them. Is it because they sinned? That's what Jesus is asking. I tell you, verse 3, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 4, or do you suppose that the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It is a common thought that people have that something bad happens, then I am being punished by God. That was the theology of the friends, and they were wrong. And then their view of God was wrong, how they viewed what God would do. And all those things associated with that. And again, we, we need to appreciate. The second thing is they failed in their mission. We remember in chapter 2, verse 11, they came to sympathize and to comfort. That's why they came. But they didn't comfort. And right here is a little side lesson for us. It is possible to make people feel worse by what we say or do. We don't want to be the nature when somebody sees us walking up the driveway, they turn out the lights, and no one says a word. Maybe they'll think nobody's home. Why? Because when this guy comes, when this guy shows up, he's just going to make me feel worse. That's how Job's friends were. And they completely missed their mission to comfort him. Some people, I like the quotation, I like hugging a porcupine, and it just hurts all the time. And then we need to appreciate how God calls upon his people, you and me, to help. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. He would say in chapter 4 of Thessalonians, therefore comfort one another with these words. Or in the book of Galatians, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in spirit of gentleness. Notice the gentleness. Spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, bear one another's burdens and therefore or thereby fulfill the law of Christ. God calls upon us 
to be his instruments to help one another. So, consider this. As you read the book of Job, you'll notice that Job's friends never once offered to pray for Job. Oh, they had finger pointing. They had blame. They had their reasons. I know why this is happening. But never once they said, Job, how about we just say a prayer together? You never find that in the book of Job. They accused Job without knowing all the facts. They were certain that Job was a sinner. His kids were sinners. He was getting what he deserved. That was their thinking, but they didn't understand everything. They never invited Job to come home with them. Here's a man who's just buried his kids. He's lost all his possessions. He's been robbed. The servants have been killed. He's just sitting there with all kinds of sores. At least just come home with me, Job. They never once say that. They never offered to rebuild his flocks. Job, all your animals are stolen. How about I give you some of my sheep? They never offered to help Job get back on his feet. Job, you know, uh, I'm going to loan you some money or I'm going to just give you some money. You're down and out and here I am and I'm going to help you. And I know many in this congregation who have been sick before has had Miss Debbie's chicken soup. I don't know if they had chicken soup back then. But they never even brought chicken soup. All they did was fussed and argued. And so when we think about Job's friends... And we have hurting in our congregation. I've got to remind myself that I don't stand with them. And I realize there's good that can be done if God wants me to do these things. And then we also see that they did not understand the nature of God and the value of suffering. And next week as we talk about Job's God, we're going to get to the end of the book. But I want you to notice how this book ends in chapter 42. It says, verse 7, verse 8, It came about, after the Lord has spoken these words to Job, that Lord said to Eliphaz the Temite, that's the one we've been reading about already, Eliphaz the Temite, My wrath, God says, is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right. You see that? We can say all kinds of stuff, but we've got to make sure what we say is right. As my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. Notice, Job's going to pray for you. You never prayed for him, but he's going to pray for you. For I will accept him so I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right. And then we find ourselves in the book of James chapter 1. Where James tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's greatest classroom, I believe, is in that test tube called suffering. Through suffering, we learn lessons we would never learn anywhere else. We can have a lifetime of sermons, a zillion Bible classes, but we go through one hard experience in our life. And it can open our eyes up to teach us things we've never learned before. And so Job's friends didn't understand that. They saw absolutely no purpose of suffering other than punishment. They saw no value in suffering. But God says it builds character. It opens our eyes to him. It reminds us that we need him every hour. And what a great reminder that is. And so as we kind of wrap this up, 
Let's talk about being a friend to someone who's hurting. Just some practical things we need to keep before us. Number one, it takes some tough skin to do this. You may have a friend like Job, and they may say some things to you that are shocking to you. They may say some things that are hard to hear. Understand, they may be speaking out of pain. They may be speaking out of anger. All kinds of emotion. And when you go to help somebody, realize that may be it. Maybe a divorce, maybe a tragedy, maybe an illness. It could be lots of reasons that cause this. Number two, there are no fast lanes through the valleys. Jesus talked about, or the shepherd wrote in Psalms chapter 23, verse 4, Yea, though I go through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. There's no bypass in those valleys. There's no fast ways around there. It's a journey, and it takes time. Number three, we can't fix everything. And that's hard for a lot of us, because we want to fix everything. We want everything to be right. Let's sit down, let's talk, let's put all the cards on the table, and let me fix you. And a lot of times, you can't fix you. A lot of times, people don't want to be fixed. And again, that's part of understanding how to help people. Number four, offering your time, your heart, and scriptures is the best. That's why when we read that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, discussing the death of a Christian, he would say, comfort one another with these words. Whose words? God's words. God's words are always right. Our words may not be right. If, if I talk too much, I may hurt this person just like Job's friends did. But when I use scripture and use it properly, it will help as God wants us to. Right here, let's turn over the book of Romans, if you will, and this just is a good time to throw this in here. Romans chapter 8, most of you know the verse, most of you have heard me get on my soapbox about this, but Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, Romans 8 verse 28, and we know, Romans 8 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How many times do we use this passage in a wrong, wrong way? Next door neighbor has his house burned down. He's standing out there and just smoking embers as he's looking at his whole life possessions just gone. And we walk up to him, Romans 8 verse 28, all things work together for good. And he's looking at this and we go home and said, I gave him God's word. I know that helped him today. Well, first of all, who's this verse applied to? Anybody and everybody? Look at, look at how Romans 8, 28 ends. Romans 8, verse 28 says, to those who are called according to his purpose. In the middle part, to those who love God. This is not a universal medicine for everybody everywhere. This is talking about disciples. And then the good may not be my good. The good may be God's good. And so maybe it's good that that prodigal went to the pigs because it woke him up and he came home repentant. That might have been good. And so when we think about good, it's not necessarily my well-being, but it's for the plan of God. If you were to ask Jesus personally, how do you feel about getting a nail put in your hand? He asked the Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass. But for the good of God, what God planned, it was something that had to be done. So we need to keep that in mind as we think about that. Number five, wrong advice is worse than no advice. Again, remember, they sat for seven days and said nothing. That's okay. 
There may, maybe sometimes you don't want to say anything and just sit with them. I love the time, uh, I didn't like the time, but, but I like the admonition Miss Debbie gave me when we went up when Sadie was in the hospital and she said, now remember, we're going to be Job's friends and we're going to sit and not say anything. I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's real hard on me, okay? But that's important to do that. That's important to do that. Number six, guard your words and use them carefully. People will remember them. You won't remember them because you're just trying to help somebody. You're just talking and talking and talking, but they'll remember what you say. So guard them. Use them carefully. Book of Proverbs uses that very expression. Don't make promises that you can't keep. Oh, I just know it'll get better. Are you God? You know that? Oh, I just know after this divorce you'll find somebody better. Do you know that? I just know if you lost this job, you'll find a better job. Do you know that? I just know if your house burned down, you'll get a better house. Be careful about making promises that you cannot keep. Number eight, helping someone spiritually is most important. Most important. The most important thing is that they get to heaven, and that's most valuable. Number nine, God puts us in positions to be useful. And we need to begin to be mindful of how important that is as we work with God and become useful in those things. Now, if you will, let's, let's look at two passages real quickly, and then we're going to wrap this up. Turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Philippians, chapter 4. And I'm going to talk to you about that little picture on the screen here. Philippians, chapter 4, and in verse 5. Philippians 4, and in verse 5. Philippians 4, verse 5. Here the apostle says, Rejoice in the Lord always always and again rejoice that's verse four verse five let your gentle spirit be known to all men the lord is near you have a gentle spirit you see that and then in the book of first corinthians first corinthians chapter 16 first corinthians chapter 16 let's look in verse 18 here the apostle says as he's wrapping up this letter to the corinthians 1 Corinthians 16, 18, For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. They have refreshed a gentle spirit. Many of you know a couple years ago, Debbie and I got to go to uh, Israel. We got to go to the Bible lands. One of the places we got to go to was Bethlehem, the Bethlehem. And there's a very well-known antique dealer in Bethlehem. And I wanted to buy something for me from the trip. And that little image on the screen is why I bought it. Now it looks big, but it's about this big. But it, it's a clay jar, and the man gave me a certificate guaranteeing it, and it was made in 1850 B.C. 1850 B.C. It was expensive, and it's very fragile. So I'm signing papers, we're, we're getting this all done, and I said, now I live in America, I live in Indiana, let me give you my address so you can ship it. He says, sir, we don't ship. He says, it's too old, it's too fragile, it's too expensive. I thought, dude, I've got switch airplanes. I've got to carry this thing home. You know what we did? Gentle, very careful, and it's sitting in my office right now. That's what you do when somebody's hurting. You need to remind yourselves of these things. In your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, if you will. 1 Peter, as... Peter is addressing the husband-wife relationship. I want you to notice a passage, again, sometimes we don't always fully understand this, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 
1 Peter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, 1 Peter 3, 7, as with someone weaker, or King James Version says, the weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and show her honor as fellow heir of grace, of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This has nothing to do with physical strength, spiritual strength, mental strength, or emotional strength. This is how you treat somebody. You don't treat your friend, your mate, your children, as if they're lawn furniture sitting out on your deck. Because it rains on it, it snows on it. We've got a couch in our house when the grandkids come. Uh-uh, no food on this couch. Uh-uh, no drinks on this couch. Uh-uh. You go upstairs, you go over here. Why? Because we're treating it a special way. That's what Peter's driving at here. That's what we're driving at when we help someone else. You treat them with gentleness. You treat them according to the golden rule. You treat them with kindness. And what a difference that made. I cannot imagine there's 35 chapters in the book of Job, and those guys didn't get it. I mean, had, had, had the book of Job ended after chapter 2, we would have rejoiced what a great book it is. His friends got it together. They came. They said nothing. This is a wonderful thing. But as soon as they had to start answering Job, the thing goes downhill. And immediately, they never offer the help that they should. As God's people, we are put in positions multiple times to help people in this congregation and people outside this congregation. May lessons like this remind us how valuable that is There'll be more people who come to this building because you cared than what Jason and I preach from this pulpit. It's not the doctrine that pulls people in. It's I had a neighbor and he showed some kindness. I was down and out at work and one of y'all went out of your way and helped me. I had somebody and their mother died and they're not even part of this church, but people came and they supported us. They encouraged us. It's that kind of care that makes all the difference. And so when we see lessons like this, it reminds us that I can do this the right way or I can do this the wrong way. And hopefully these lessons will help us and put before us how important it is to be the people that God wants us to be, to help people through the trials and through all the things they go through to be what God wants them to be. And so that's our thoughts for receiving this. If you're not a Christian, we hope that these lessons will remind you how important it is to have people around me. How important it is to have Jesus in my life. You know, Job was getting all kinds of advice and ridicule and accusations from his friends, but he knew, and God knew, about his character. And you need to understand that it doesn't matter what people say, it's matter what God says, what God knows about you. And so if you've never been baptized in Jesus, you need to do that. You need to do that because that's what God wants you to do. God wants you to be with him, be one with him, and go to heaven with him. And then as God's people, let us learn to be the comfort, the refreshing spirit, the gentle spirit that will help the others. If you're subject in any way, why don't you come as we stand, as we sing.